0: You can just kind of keep your heart in a place of worship for a minute. As I was watching the kids as they were up here for the special, right? They did such a great job tonight. Such a great job. You know, you can clap for them. But as I saw a couple of them, and I, I see them every day because they're in our in our preschool. And so during the week, as I'm up and down the hallway, I usually try to peek in to see how everybody's doing. And maybe encourage the one that's in time out, that we've all had to learn our lessons in life, right? And so, so but this week, this week as I walked by, there, there was, I'm not going to say any child's, any child's names, but, but there was one child who was just crying unconsolably. I mean, I mean, face red, eyes watering, snot coming out of their nose. I mean, just, I mean, ugly crying. And and I and I and I stopped because I wanted to make sure everything was okay but then I had the opportunity to find out why he was crying through his own complaint is that he just kept saying this other child's name over and over which I'm not going to say and I kid you not I'm quoting this is what he was saying so and so has a booger in their nose and it's so gross and and I stopped for a minute I thought you know I've seen a lot of boogers in my day, right? I got kids. I got kids. But I've never seen one so gross that's caused a child to despair to the point of tears. Now, why am I telling you that? Because Jesus says to you and I to become like children. Now, he means a lot of things when he says that, but you know one of the things he means when he says that is that you and I have to go back to being a child in the sense that we've gotta stop being embarrassed about the things that frighten us. Because what gives your fear power is secrecy. And so I just wanna encourage you, if you're here tonight, before we move on with the message, that if you've got things that cause you to be afraid, I would encourage you to find someone that you trust. And then if you don't trust anybody, then you find one of us and talk to us about the things that you're afraid of so that we can pray with you that God's gonna give you the strength to conquer that fear. Father, I pray for the fear that's in the hearts of people tonight. And I pray that you would liberate them, not, not from the fear, but you would liberate them from the embarrassment of that fear. Because we know that the only way that they're ever going to conquer that fear is for them to face it. And we know sometimes, God, we cannot face it alone. And so I pray for every person here that's afraid, that they will invite someone in, that they will share their secret, that they will tell their story, and that they would be free. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody sit together. Amen. Amen. Jesus. Hey, if you remember last week, I said I'm going to be doing a giveaway each week this month if you tag me on a Christmas meme, and so if you're wondering where you can get these, you can't because these were exclusive gifts to our leaders at our Christmas party, so I'm just up in the ante. I'm going to give another one of these away next week, so if you see a Christmas meme, tag me in at Facebook or uh, Instagram. This is the one that won. Mom's during December. Mom, me. Mom, I need some more toothpaste. Mom, all right. But it'll have to be part of your Christmas, though, right? Because we're on a budget, right? This is Jolene Webb. Where's Jolene? Is she back here? It's Jolene, there she is right there. So good. If you tag me in your Instagram story, I'm almost 53. I'm never going to find that. So you make it easy for me. My kids are like, Dad, they're, just, they're not going to put it on there. I'm like, all right. That's on them. I'm old. I can't. It's Tough. Tough. Well, if you're... Oh, I got one more thing I want to do. Let me do this. Hey, if you've not yet been to the Persnickety Crane Cafe, you need to visit that shop. The Carujo family, one of City Life's own, opened that coffee shop up uh, over... It's over uh, off where the old Super K used to be in that plaza off of Victory. Uh, Coffee is delicious, and I would highly advise whatever that little baggie of sugar cookies they have there as an impulse buy at the counter, you buy one of those for yourself and don't share them with anyone else. And Delicious. Persnickety Crane Cafe. Hey, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 3, verses 1 through 3. We launched a series last week. It's just a little mini-series for these three weeks in December, but it's, it's based out of this text. Let me read these verses to you. I want to do a little bit of recap. We have a lot of guests here tonight, especially because of the kids special, and so we just want to catch them up, and then we'll, we'll jump into part two. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins, turn to God, and the kingdom of heaven is near. That's our three-week series. We did repent of your sin last week. We're going to do the kingdom of heaven is near this week, and we'll do turn uh, to God next week. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare." The way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. And I believe that John the Baptist, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to give this message 2,000 years ago, that he was teaching us how we are to prepare the way through the verses that came right before it. That the way that we prepare the way for the Lord to come into our lives, and you might say, well, Fred, he's already come into my, my life because I've already made a vow of devotion to Christ. And what I would say is he's come into your life for your salvation, but he does not yet have full authority over all of your life because that's a lifetime of work. There's always a more deeper way that Christ wants to come into our lives. And the way we prepare the way for him is to repent of our sins, To turn to God and that the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, you might think that the kingdom of heaven is near as a declaration. I'm agreeing with you, but it is also a command, and I'm going to explain that to you tonight. And in this series, we put it part of Christmas because I believe what we see, these three commands, that they're illustrated for us through the three epic journeys in the Christmas narrative Last week we talked about the Christ family leaving Israel and escaping to Egypt and how that's a prophetic picture of repenting of our sins. Tonight we're going to talk about the Magi and how they came from the east and traveled such a long distance to see the Christ child and how I believe this is a prophetic declaration of the kingdom of heaven is near. And Next week we'll talk about Jesus' family coming back from Egypt, back to Jerusalem and how God intended that to be a prophetic picture of turning to God. This series is about preparing the way for Jesus to have authority over every area of our lives. And when we prepare a way, we make a way, pointing the world to him. This idea of preparing a way for Jesus to have full authority over every area of our life is not just for us, not just so we can experience heaven on earth, but we've been given a divine mandate to be the light of the world. And the more you prepare a way, the more fulfilling your life is, the eternal life that he promised, And then the more your life begins to point others to that great and wonderful salvation. Somebody say the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Let's talk about what that is because the Bible uses this phrase very often in Scripture, both in the Gospels and then also in the epistles, in the letters that follow. And the kingdom of heaven is referring to both a very real place and then it's also talking about a way of life. When it's talking about the kingdom of heaven as a very real place, it's talking about the place that you and I are promised after we die if we've made a vow of devotion to Christ. The Bible's clear. There's only two choices for us. It's either heaven or hell. It's either paradise or perdition. And the difference between those two is whether or not you accept Christ in this life as your Savior. The kingdom of heaven is a place that we are headed to following christ but it's not just a place it's a way of life here you see when i make a vow of devotion to christ and the heaven that awaits me is promised to me i am now a citizen of this kingdom and if i am going to be a citizen of this kingdom which is often articulated in modern society as a disciple of christ then it means that i should take on the culture of this kingdom of which i am now a citizen And as a church, the way that we talk about the culture of the kingdom of God is through the character of Christ. That's where we're going to be going next week when we talk about turning to God. That God expects us to have an expectation that heaven as a very real place is waiting for us. But he also expects us to live out the culture of the kingdom of heaven in the here and now. To let the character of Christ be formed in us. So there's this word that comes after here for John the Baptist when he says the kingdom of heaven. I think he's talking about the place and the way of life. He says it's near. Now, I think that he talks about the nearness of the kingdom of heaven for both reasons. I think he's talking about the nearness of the kingdom of heaven as far as heaven being a very real place because he's trying to say to you and to me, we're always close to the place that we're headed to whether we're one day old or a hundred years old because this life is but an instant. There's a lesson that the Bible wants to give to us about the brevity of life and that the kingdom of heaven is near because none of us are far away from it regardless of our age and it's supposed to help us to understand the preciousness of this life that you and I have. It is near because it is close. But then there is the idea of the nearness of heaven when it comes to it being a way of life in regards to the character of Christ. And here, John the Baptist is trying to draw a distinction between being near and being present. Because scripture calls us for the character of Christ to be present in our lives, not just near to us. And when John the Baptist says that the kingdom Of heaven is near, it's a declaration in speaking of the place, but it's a command in regards to the way of life. God is saying to you and to me, take that which is supposed to be present and stop making it just near to you. That the character of Christ should be formed in us. And can I just agree with you that even in my own life, What it takes for it to go from being near to being present is hard. It's not hard because it's far away. I think that's what God's trying to say to us. It's hard because to close the gap is arduous. To close the gap is difficult. I would liken it to that moment tomorrow because we have a Saturday church revelation and you don't have an alarm clock. And you wake up when you wake up, unless you've got little kids. But one day they're going to get old like ours, and then you'll go to bed before them. Come on, praise the Lord. And you're in, does anybody have a special chair or spot on the couch? Right, i got a spot on the couch that belongs. My dad had a chair. It was a recliner for me. i got a spot on the couch. When I come into the room, if somebody's in that, they, I don't even have to say anything. They know. They have to move, right? This is, this is my spot. And and then when you get into your spot, you you begin to find yourself into a certain position. Propping up pillows around you. There's a certain throw that you want because of its texture. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You want control of the remote control so you can watch what you want to watch. And then you get settled. I, I hear you, Cortez. Preach. You get... You get settled into your spot, right? it's like when you're trying to fall asleep. You're trying to find that perfect position where you just feel like you're at peace with the universe. And you get into this position and you look up and you realize the remote is on the ottoman. And you cannot reach it without moving. And that's the moment where you think to yourself, I wonder if being a Jedi is real. And then you realize it's not. And you have to close the gap. It's so close, but yet it's so far. That is the character of Christ in all of our lives. You know why? Because we are comfortable in our humanity. We are comfortable in our brokenness. We find a sense of familiarity with our selfishness, and it's hard for us to reach For the character of Christ because it pulls us out of the position that we're so accustomed to. John the Baptist says the kingdom of heaven is near. And what he's saying is make it present. Make it present. The difference between the character of Christ being near in my life and present in my life is sacrifice. The difference between the character of Christ being near in my life and present in my life is sacrifice. And what I believe, that the journey of the Magi, the reason why it is a prophetic picture of the kingdom of heaven is near, because their journey illustrates for us the kinds of sacrifice that we must be willing to make. And if we don't make these sacrifices, then the kingdom of God will always just be near by way of the character of Christ, and it will never be fully present in us. I'm going to give you three tonight that I see through the story of the Magi, and the first one is this, the sacrifice of time. The sacrifice of time. God has given all of humanity all the time that we need for the character of Christ to be formed in us. It's a matter of how we spend it. There are lots of theories on the country of origin for the Magi. The two prevailing ones are both Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and then Sheba, if you remember the queen of Sheba that came to visit Solomon, Sheba, which is modern-day Yemen. Now, most tend to fall into the Persia category. I do myself, and I'm going to explain why that is. But whether it is Persia or whether it was Sheba, the distance they would have traveled 2,000 years ago Two years to get there. Two years. If you are from the 757 and you talk to somebody who lives in Newport News and you ask them to meet you at a restaurant in Hampton, you would think that you were asking them to drive to Alaska. (laughs) Right? Now, we're not from it. We drive to get to play. We don't care. I grew up in the country. You had to drive 45 minutes to go anywhere where civilization would begin. And then... Don't even talk to people about going to a a restaurant in Virginia Beach or down in Chesapeake. They'll just turn and walk away. They won't even respond to you. If the Christmas story was dependent upon someone who grew up in the 757 to travel to give gifts to Jesus, this would not be in the Bible. It wouldn't be there. Two years, two years To go on this journey. It's incredible. It's incredible. How much time have you spent this last year doing spiritual things so that you could be spiritually healthy, so the character of Christ could be formed in you? It's called the sacrifice of time. Jesus didn't want the Magi to just be a couple of days away. He didn't want the magi to be across the street. He wanted the magi to be distant and far because it was going to cost them something to get there. Because he knew he was telling a story about the human experience and that one day we would be in settings like this talking about the idea of the character of Christ being present because we were willing to give up something in this life. And it's called time. Let me give you a list. If you were to grade yourself, you choose how you want to grade A, B, C, D, F. Grade yourself by way of percentage. If you just want to do a pass fail, ask yourself this question Yesterday, how much time did you give to your spiritual well being? How about last week? If you were to look at every day, how. How would you grade yourself? How much time were you intentional? And you might say, how do you define that? And what I would say is you got to show up next week to hear about that. Because that's what turning to God looks like. How about last month? How about this past year? How about your lifetime? What if you were to give yourself a grade over your life? if it were divided up in all the ways that you spend your time, how much would be in the bucket that is called the sacrifice of time that you gave, meaning that I chose not to do these other things, to do these things that enable the character of Christ to go from being near to me to being present in me, because when you prepare a way, you make a way. you got to be willing to... Give yourself a grade. You've got to be willing to assess yourself. If you're failing on each one of those categories now and looking back, what I would say, don't forget you're going to be here next year asking the same question. And the way that you get to give yourself a different grade 12 months from now is you've got to be willing to sacrifice some time to do the things that form Christ in you. The sacrifice of time. Somebody say the sacrifice of purpose. There's the sacrifice of time we see in the story of the Magi, and we see that there is a sacrifice of purpose when we look at the lives of the Magi. This is from an article out of Faith, Work, and Economics. It's a publication I subscribe to and then also a group I belong to. It says this, The group of Magi in question came from the Far East, They probably served as court advisors, making forecasts and predictions for their royal patrons based on their study of the stars, about which they were quite knowledgeable. Magi often wandered from court to court, and it was not unusual for them to cover great distances in order to attend the birth or the crowning of a king, paying their respects and offering gifts. It's not surprising, therefore, that Matthew would mention them as validation of Jesus' kingship or that Herod would regard their arrival as a serious matter. And you know what else Herod didn't like? Herod probably did not like the fact that Magi did not show up for his crowning and his coronation, but now they're showing up for this child. Envy is a terrible thing. A sacrifice of purpose. You see one of the reasons why I think that they came from the far east is because there was someone that used to be there that carried the prophetic insight of the coming of a savior and his name is Daniel. Daniel was taken away in the Babylonian captivity and he spent 70 the 70 years of his adult life as a prisoner in a foreign country. 70 years. He lived out. He was taken away into captivity in 605 B.C. And when you look at Daniel 5.11, these notes are always online. If you're visiting with us, you can download them. Daniel 5.11 tells us that there was a point where Daniel was promoted to a significant position, even though he was still a captive. He was not free to go and do what he wanted. He couldn't travel to where he wanted. He was still given authority, but he was a prisoner at the same time. And he was placed as the head of all of the other magi in the kingdom. He was the head magi. Because he had this incredible gift that God had given to him to interpret dreams and to see the future. Not because of a false magic he practiced, but because God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit to do unspeakable, indescribable things. So I think, as many people think, people like Daniel, and then you've got a prophet by the name of Jeremiah who lived out his ministry during the Babylonian captivity, that God put them in this kingdom because God was writing a story that would one day be played out thousands of years later. That one day, God wanted Magi to travel from the east to see the Christ child because he wanted to create a picture for us for what it takes for the character of Christ to be present in our lives. And so he plants the seed of the knowledge of the Christ child in this foreign country for another reason that we're going to get to in a minute, and i got to tell you that when Daniel was a kid and somebody asked him what did he want it to be when he grew up, I don't think that he put on the list, I want to be taken away as a slave by an occupying army and live my life as a prisoner in a foreign land. That was not his dream. See, sometimes you've got to be willing to sacrifice the purpose you think you want for the purpose that God has called you to because you're supposed to be a part of a bigger story. I'm not saying that every person is called to have a purpose of suffering. I'm not saying that every person is called to have a purpose of pain like Daniel did, but what I'm saying is that you and I have to be willing to take the purpose that we think we have, to take the desires that we feel like we are in us for our vocation for relationships for where we want to live all the things that kind of fold into our purpose we've got to be like Abraham with Isaac and put it on the altar and be willing to give it up to God sometimes he takes it but sometimes he gives it back to us because he's just testing the trueness of our hearts But for all of us, we have to be willing to make a sacrifice of purpose. To be willing to say, God, whatever it is that you've called me to do, however I'm supposed to live my life, I lay it at your feet. You see, this idea of the sacrifice of purpose doesn't come directly through the magi it comes from the magi i believe as we trace back like many do many theologians i'm not just giving you something that's a strange idea to me believe that the knowledge of the christ child traces its roots back to daniel and it wouldn't be there if he hadn't been willing to sacrifice his dreams for the sake of an eternal purpose This is the lie that so many people suffer from. I can't have a godly purpose until I become a godly person. What I'm telling you tonight is that you will never be a godly person until you embrace a godly purpose. Because it is participation that brings transformation. And one of the reasons why so many people are held back from the purpose that God has called them to, it's it's because they feel like they they're not good enough. They they feel unworthy. And what God says to you and to me, of course you are. In fact, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be worthy enough. But you can still be a little bit better than you are today and a little bit more worthy than you are today. But the thing that keeps you from making the progress that you need to make in this season of your life is that you're not willing to embrace the purpose that he's called you to. And as you begin to walk out the purpose, all of a sudden the character of Christ begins to form in your life. It's one of the reasons why here at 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 the church for for many years we've used this phrase, participation brings transformation. For too many people, they show up at churches and they're not allowed to participate until they make progress. And then they don't make that progress because they're not allowed to participate. Now, are there limits for that for us? Sure there are. Sure there are. You can't be a leader unless you've made a certain amount of progress. The Bible talks about that. You can't work with our kids unless you've made a certain amount of progress. It's important. We do background checks. There's an application. We don't want our kids to be vulnerable to people that are still new in their journey. But if you're a grown up here, you're free game to suffer around people who are messed up. Because guess what? One day you used to be messed up. And somebody gave you grace, invited you in, and let you make mistakes. You might be working next to somebody and hear them telling a story and words come out of their mouth and think, what? what on earth? How did they get to be on the Saturday Life team with language like that? And my answer to you is, if that's ever going to change in them, it's going to be through being around people like you who can come alongside them and encourage them in a loving way about a different way to articulate and communicate thoughts without vulgarity. So many people struggle in their journey of the character of Christ going from being near to being present is because they are robbed of the experience of serving the kingdom of God and they are robbed of the relationships that come through service by being around people that can show them a different way. Are you preparing the way see it's a twofold question here it's this idea of are you willing to sacrifice your purpose are you willing to enter into a conversation with God about your vocation about your education about your dreams that you have for your life have dreams have desires we're not saying that what we're saying is just be willing to ask God the question are these the same dreams that you have for me And the nature of God is not to hide, it's to reveal. He wants you to know the plans that he has for you. And oftentimes he's the one that put those desires in your heart to begin with. But this idea of a sacrifice of purpose, it's twofold in the sense that you've got to be willing to sacrifice your purpose if that's what God calls you to. But it also means that you need to be patient with people who are trying to figure out their purpose. It means making room for people that are on the journey trying to find their way. Are you preparing the way? There is a sacrifice of time, there is a sacrifice of purpose, and then there is this final one called a sacrifice of treasure. A sacrifice of treasure. Matthew 2, 11 tells us that there were three unique gifts that were given on this moment and on this day. Most theologians, as you break out the chronology of the Christmas story, the shepherds were more than likely there at his birth, but because of this long journey that the magi had to go on, by the time they arrived, Jesus was probably a toddler by then. And they show up with these incredible gifts. And many of you are familiar with these gifts, whether or not you've been around church very much or not. It's one of the reasons why we, people assume that there were three magi. The Bible never tells us how many magi there were. It just tells us that there were three gifts. And so we naturally assume that there were three magi. But we don't know. And the three gifts were of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And most of us who have been around church for any amount of time... We've, we've been told the story of these three gifts and what these three gifts represent. And what happens oftentimes with scriptures that have been, been popularized is that, the, that that one insight overshadows the rest of the story. And what I would say to you is that, yes, these gifts, and I'm going to explain them to you tonight briefly, what they represent is powerful, but what I would suggest to you, the greater picture which has been obscured through the popularization of the teaching of the gifts, that the greater lesson that's been obscured is the picture that we find as the gifts were given. Gold is a gift that kings would give to kings, so it is a prophetic picture of Jesus being the king of kings. It speaks to his dignity. It speaks to his royalty. Frankincense was was burned during religious ceremonies it was an incense and so it speaks to the priestly life of christ it speaks to the divinity of christ that he was both fully man and fully god the last one is the gift that's curious now we understand that myrrh was an an embalming substance for people that had died and so we understand that this speaks to his destiny that he is a king and a priest, but he's also our savior. And that it was prophetically foretelling that Christ would one day die. But can I just tell you the kind of courage that it would take? Right? Just We read these, we've heard these stories so many times, we, we forget the cultural context and the social context in which they existed. Can I just tell you the kind of courage that it would take to give myrrh as a gift to a mother and their child? It would... It would be the equivalent, I kid you not, it would be the equivalent of you being invited to a baby shower and you bringing a gift certificate to the local funeral home and give it to that family. Who would do that? You better not do that. (laughs) Don't be that socially awkward person at the party. You get invited to your friend's wedding. They're opening the gifts, they're all excited, and you give them a gift certificate to the local divorce lawyer. Well, who does that? Nobody does that. It's dark. But here in the story, here in the story, these people were brave enough to give the gift that the unction of God had put in them, even though it would not have been popular, even though it would not have been socially acceptable, And we don't find any telling of the story that Jesus' family was offended by the gift that was given. Oh, We have a problem with offense in the church today, in society today. This story is such a powerful story because it begs the question, and here it is, are you willing to give up things that are treasures to you for the sake of people who are different than you? Are you willing to give up things that are treasures to you for the sake of people who are different than you? You see, because if you believe, as I believe, that the ethnicity of these magi were of an Arab descent, this is the part of the story I think that has gotten overshadowed for too long and we understand that Mary and Joseph were of Jewish descent, what we see in the Christmas narrative is one of the most powerful pictures of harmony in all of Scripture is that magi who are Arabs and Jesus' parents who are Jews kneeling together in a moment of worship under the banner of Jesus Christ who is the King of Kings. This picture is not about all religions being equal under Christ. We don't believe that here. We believe Jesus when He says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by Me." Part of this picture is to say to the world, whatever religion you grew up with, if Jesus is not the center of it, you've got to be willing to set it aside to embrace the one true faith which is Jesus himself. This idea of Arabs and Jews coming together under the banner of Christ is not about Jesus making room for many ways to God. It's about people setting aside what they thought was the way to embrace the only way. But it is also a picture. It is also a picture of us making room for one another's ethnic, cultural norms at the feet of the cross. We've all got to be willing to set aside whatever religion we came in with to embrace who Christ is. But in that moment of being at the foot of the cross of Christ, He expects us to make room for our differences. He expects us to make room for one another's preferences. He expects us to make room for one another's points of view that might be different than our own. We don't compromise on morality. That was my message last week. We talked about that. The four different questions you've got to ask yourself to know whether or not something is a sin. We can't compromise on those things. But what we've been fed and taught through Christianity for far too long, oftentimes through people that are famous because of their own arrogance and because of their own hubris, that we demand rightness over righteousness. And when we demand rightness, we don't make room for one another. But when we live out righteousness because the character of Christ goes from being near to being present, we begin to realize it's okay for us not to agree on everything as long as we agree on the central things. If I were to put this into a modern day cultural context for you today, what I would say is that both a person who is in the Democratic Party who is a Christ follower and a person who is in the Republican Party who is a Christ follower can both come together at the feet of Christ. The person who believes that the impeachment of the president is the greatest thing that's ever happened, and the person who believes that is the most devastating thing that's ever happened, both of those people can be devoted followers of Christ, and God expects us to make room for one another at the foot of the cross. And if you can't see the other person's perspective, it's why you need to make room for them so that you can better understand one another. Acts 1.8. Giving a nod to Bishop Claude Alexander. Heard him at a conference not too long ago. I quoted him and referenced him recently in another message. I'm referencing him again tonight. What an incredible man of God. I love hearing speakers that turn something that you've always believed about Scripture or a certain verse upside down. You're like, how is it that I'm this old and have heard this many messages and never heard this. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now if you're old like me and you've been in a lot of sermons like me, you know that this is the center of missiology in Christendom. That this is how... How missions work starts is that Jerusalem is where you're from and then it's concentric circles, right? Working its way out to the ends of the earth and Bishop Alexander isn't saying that that's not true, but what he's saying is it's secondary and what's primary, you got to love this, is that when Jesus said this, he understood that most of the people that were in Jerusalem at that moment weren't from there. They weren't from there. They had traveled from afar for Passover, and they stay through Pentecost, and we understand that when we're given the list of all the people that heard the disciples, right? as they were speaking a spiritual, as they were saying a spiritual language, but they were heard in all these different native tongues. We're given that list to remind us that this crowd is full of people from other places. So when Jesus says, It starts in Jerusalem. What he was saying is the message of the gospel that's inside of you, you've got to start telling people about it wherever you are. Wherever you find yourself in this life, never forget that God has put in you a message of salvation for the world to know. Start where you are, wherever you might be. Judea, which was the place of aristocracy in Israel. It was the place of religious superiority in Israel. So when Jesus said, go to Judea, he was saying, and don't forget, you've got to be willing to talk to people about Jesus who look down on you. You've got to be willing to have the kind of courage You've got to be willing to have some forgiveness and grace, even though you don't like them, even though they've made fun of you, even though they have belittled you, even though they have held power over you. You've got to be willing to go into the Judean circles of people that have looked down upon you and even be willing to tell them about the love of Christ. And then he says, you've got to go to Samaria, and we know what Samaria was. Samaria was the place that Jewish people, that they looked down on. And Jesus is saying to you and to me, you got people that look down on you, but guess what? You look down on your fair share of people too. And he's saying, you got to be willing to go to people that you look down on. You got to be willing to go to people that, that you don't like them because you, they, you feel like they're beneath you. And the list goes on and on and on of why it is Samaria to us. Bishop Alexander says, you got you to spend time with those people. And love on them. Because oftentimes it's by spending time with them that you begin to realize the biases that you had were wrong and you've got more in common than you realized. You look down on them oftentimes because you've bought into a narrative called Fox News and CNN. You've bought into a narrative that has nothing to do with truth, but it has to do with peddling fear. And as Christians, we're supposed to be the ones that stand up and say, this isn't right. That Christianity is about love, and it's about grace. It's about truth, but it's about truth being spoken in the context of love and grace, always and only. Bishop Alexander, it's so good, isn't it? You gotta start where you are. You gotta be willing to tell people that look down on you you've got to be willing to tell people that you look down on. And then he says, listen to this, then you can get a vision for the ends of the earth. Because now you have the credibility to tell the world. And the reason why the gospel is rejected so often throughout the world is the world looks at us and they look at our division and our divisiveness with people that we think look down on us and the division of the divisiveness in the church of us looking down on other people and we've lost our credibility to be the harbinger of the coming of a king. Are you preparing the way? For Jesus to have authority over every part of your heart. As you repent of your sin. as next week we're going to talk about as you turn to God. And this week talk about this idea of the kingdom of heaven being near. You make a way for him. And the more you make a way, the more you prepare a way. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. 2 Corinthians 5. Let me give you 20 to 21, and I'm going to jump down to six-one. do Don't forget, the, the Bible wasn't written in chapter and verse. It was written in letters, and sometimes the, the segmentation causes the, the loss of the continuation of a thought, and this is a great example of that. This is Paul writing, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Right? We're supposed to make a way. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, right? He's saying, be reconciled to God so that you can be a voice of reconciliation to the world. He made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're going to talk about what that looks like next week. And then six one comes, listen to this. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The word here in the Greek to receive is the Greek word dekoma, which means to take into your hands. And the Greek word here for in vain is the word kinos, which is the opposite of dekoma, which means to be empty handed. And Paul is using poetic language here as a play on words as his explanation point for what it means to be an ambassador of christ to the world he's saying you have held out your hand at some point in your life because the holy spirit opened your eyes to see that christ is the savior of the world and you asked him for forgiveness and you made a vow of devotion to him and you became a citizen of heaven And you held out your hands and God gave you the gift of grace, but yet you go to the world as if you were empty handed. What's Paul saying? He's saying, You will not be an ambassador to the world until you give the grace freely that you have been given yourself. Do not, he says, receive in hand and then interact with the world as if you were empty-handed. Because you and I have given the kind of grace that makes room for every kind of person at the foot of the cross. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship as this capstone for these 90 minutes together, we hold out our hands. We hold out our hands. We hold out our hands. Help us to see the grace that we've been given. Help us to see the grace that we've been given. To forgive us for all the sacrifice that we have not made. For not being willing to make the sacrifice of time and purpose and treasure. We say to you, forgive us. Forgive us. And may it be that this coming year will look different for us. Not just for our own pursuit as we prepare a way in our own hearts, but as we make a way for others. Let this year be a year where we give out the kind of grace that you have so freely given to us. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.